0: will my my point heart heart. Heart. the kids
1: Good afternoon, my name is Jason Staniak and I am Tutorial Fellow in Ethnomusicology at St. John's College and a university lecturer at the Faculty of Music. I'm here to welcome you to a symposium being offered through the Humanitas program, which sponsors a series of visiting professorships at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge intended to bring leading practitioners and scholars to both universities to address major themes in the arts, social sciences, and the humanities. Created by Lord Weidenfeld, the program is managed and funded by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue with the support of a series of generous benefactors and administered by the Oxford Research Center in the humanities. St. John's College has the enormous privilege to host the Humanitas Professorship in Classical Music and Music Education a chair made possible by the generous support of Mick Davis. This year's Chair in Classical Music and Music Education is held by Imogen Cooper. I'll forego giving a long overview of Imogen's illustrious career. I provided one yesterday. but suffice it to say that she is truly one of the International Circuit's finest concert pianists, having performed in many of the elite concert halls with a cross selection of some of our top conductors, uh, uh, orchestras, and musicians. We here at Oxford and St. John's have been immensely fortunate to have had Imogen in our midst at various moments since February when she commenced her role as Humanitas professor. She gave a spellbinding all Schubert recital on February 3rd and on the following morning, a masterclass filled with all manner of pedagogical pearls for four Oxford students pianists. And just yesterday, she delivered a moving, deeply felt lecture entitled The Hidden Power of the Recreative Process in Music. Some of us have also have had the pleasure to have shared a meal or two with Imogen, and at all moments her presence has been a generous and an inspiring one. We're joined on stage today by two equally inspiring presences. As many of you will already know, Simon Callow is one of the world's great actors. His versatility is astonishing with roles that span across all genres and media in stage productions of Shakespeare and Beckett, in musicals such as Andrew Lloyd Webber's West End, in popular films such as Four Weddings and a Funeral and Shakespeare in Love, on television shows such as Doctor Who, and very close to home, Inspector Morse. He has also had notable success as a director of plays and operas, and he is a prolific author. You can find his writings among other places in the form of columns for Gramophone Magazine and The Guardian or in a string of well-regarded books ranging from biographies of Oscar Wilde, Charles Lawton, Orson Welles to the absolutely seminal book being an actor. My colleague Eric Clark is professor at Oxford's Faculty of Music where he holds the Heather Professorship one of oxford's oxford university's most prestigious <coughs> excuse me one of oxford university's most prestigious and long standing posts its origin dating back to 1627 he is one of the world's leading authorities on the psychology of music and musical creativity from 2004 to 2007 he was an associate director of the arts and humanities research council's research center for the History and Analysis of Recorded Music, popularly known as CHARM, and is currently an Associate Director of the Research Center for Musical Performance as Creative Practice, a project that focuses on the collaborative work between composers and performers in the realization of contemporary pieces of music. His books and essays are absolutely essential reading to anyone interested in the fascinating and knotty topics of musical psychology, listening, music in everyday life, recording technology, and so on. He has co-authored and co-edited many books, and his monograph, Ways of Listening, an Ecological Approach to the Perception of Musical Meaning, was published by Oxford University Press in 2005. That book represents one of the most persuasive analyses of the exceedingly complex relationship between musical listening practices and the production of musical meaning. Today's symposium has as its title, Performance, Interpretation, or Identification. It follows directly on the lecture Imogen gave yesterday on the recreative in music. I'm gonna turn it over to Imogen now, and she'll give a brief overview of her um, talk yesterday.
2: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I would also like to welcome you here and say it's wonderful to see such a crowd on such a rainy afternoon. (coughs) Um, I'm not expecting that we stick at all with the subject of my lecture yesterday, but for those who could not be here, uh, just a little idea of what I was talking about. I attempted to explore the mysterious undercurrents of a great musical performance the focus and inner attention required of the performer, the energies tapped, mental, emotional and spiritual, the preparation needed to open the channels to these energies. I also spoke of the silent but nonetheless potent participation of the audience, of their contribution to the proceedings, without which the experience would in a strange way not be complete. I even suggested that this circle of energy is completed by the ghostly participation of the composer, not just via his or her music, but in the sense of the performer providing a continuation and even resolution of the energies and impetus behind the composition. I talked also of the oceanic feeling, the wonderful experience of something other taking over, and the walls of one's conscious world falling away, the feeling of being played rather than playing. Actually, feeling is almost an unfortunate word. It implies a certain quality of emotion with which we are by and large familiar. In this case, the experience is almost neutral or impersonal and certainly very pure outside of the ordinary self. How does this translate to acting, to listening, to composing? Another strand of my thought is around the difference, if any, between the wordless art of, say, instrumental, symphonic music, jazz, and the art that is based on language, on the word, namely theatre. Is there a difference between the inner spaces drawn on by musicians and by actors? Does the word provide greater freedom of expression or is it, Restrictive in any way. How does an actor safeguard his own source of power when working day in, day out with others, maybe even with a director with whom he discovers he is in conflict? Is it similar to an orchestra performing under a conductor in whom they don't believe? Where is the performer at that moment? All of this and indeed the title of this symposium is only a suggestion and we should not necessarily adhere to it. The thought behind the title today was this, that interpretation in the sense of an, an inevitably subjective understanding of the material leading to certain decisions in the performance is meaningless without a deep resonance an identification with not only the idiom of the composer, but also with that ineffable component that was behind the composition in the first place. This is no airy-fairy concept. It is a particular part of the job. Serious, yes, but leading to a releasing of energies rather than a restriction of them.
3: So, to try and kind of get the discussion started, and uh, we will start by having a discussion that's primarily focused up here on the stage, but we'll certainly move to a, one that involves as many of you as would wish to participate in it later on. To start on it, I'm going to be uh, rather dogged, as it were, and start with the, the actually very uh, profoundly simple and yet um, provocative title for this symposium that uh, Imogen has presented us with, Performance, Interpretation or Identification. I'm going to be dogged in the sense that I'm going to start actually with not the first but the second (laughs) word of the symposium, Interpretation. Um, It's become, I think, quite accepted that performers interpret the music that they play and indeed describing someone as a wonderful interpreter of, for example, Bach's music, is often considered to be a much greater accolade than to call someone a wonderful performer, arguably. But the term interpretation, with either its kind of biblical or psychoanalytic associations, suggests something um, hidden within the music that the performers are aiming to reveal something beyond or behind what is manifest in the music. So why do we think this is? What is the attraction or the necessity perhaps of such an attitude and what do we think is concealed And why is it concealed rather than made manifest? Is this a kind of failure in a sense of composition that it is unable to make manifest what we think is latent within it? Or is it somehow a generative relationship that the composer can produce with his or her performers to specify as much as can be specified within the compositional process and yet to leave a great deal unspecified either through a failure of notation and the capacity through composition to make everything explicit or perhaps even through a kind of deliberate and in a sense a culturally convened um, understanding that that there is a point at which composition stops and interpretation and performance start. So. Perhaps you know why, as I say, why do we do we think that interpretation is necessary, and what do we think interpretation consists of? Do we think it is indeed, uh, uh, as Imogen was. Um, uh, I was going to say hinting at, but making quite explicit yesterday, a kind of reaching behind what we see, what is manifest in the comp- in the in the composition, for something beyond it. Or is there another sense in which what we are doing, when wh- what performers are doing when they interpret music, is kind of somehow making sense out of something that is. In the state at which a composer leaves it, or in the case of acting, the state in which a playwright leaves a script, as yet not a living and sensible thing. So, um, perhaps, so I'm going to contrast two terms, two words, two ways in which we might use the term interpretation. If we have a string of symbols, as a musical score is, or a script for that matter, if we have a string of symbols, they don't yet have. Uh, a complete organisation, until someone makes those symbols take up a certain set of relationships. So one sense of the word interpret is that way in which the same sentence can be uttered in many different ways, the same string of, of, of musical events can be expressed in different ways and come to be uh, a number of different, uh, a number of different composite events. That that's one sense, perhaps, in which we use the word interpretation. And a second one then is this rather kind of more serious, and as I say, quasi-analytic, come biblical hermeneutic, if you like, um, sense of interpreting that which is not explicit, something that lies behind or beyond the notation. So, I thought we might start by considering these uh, two ways in which we think of the word interpretation and perhaps, Simon, I wonder if you might have something to say about those, t- those two takes on it as far as an actor in relation to a script is concerned.
4: <coughs> yeah, um, clearly there are points of comparison between the musician and the actor and there are points of great difference. and. Uh, One of the things that might be worth saying straight away is that the actor's score, so to speak, the text, is infinitely less annotated than the player's. Uh, Basically, you have the words on the page. You occasionally have brackets gently or um, uh, um, brackets with a double meaning or something like that. But on the whole, what you have is simply the words of the character. And it's the job of the actor and the director to, as it were, discover what, uh, what the real world that these words represent, because the words are simply the words spoken by the characters, and the characters do a great deal more than just speak. The characters are involved in action, both physical and, as it were, the pursuit of their objectives, which are expressed through the words but not necessarily by any means uh, um, entirely clearly Mm. Uh, because there may be many and many subtle psychological uh, activities going on within that. Um, There may be in addition um, an element of style uh, as in for example a restoration comedy where you clearly have a a world which is expressed uh, in, in, in verbal gestures of a great extravagance and uh, complexity, um, uh, b- which, in a way, conceal the actions. You can become bewildered, uh, um, uh, lost in the surface dazzle of a text. Um, so, um, for, for these various reasons, an actor comes at a, at a, at a text from a slightly different angle. To a to a, a musical performer, but also I think one might uh, uh, you know um, there, there there are though comparisons. Um, for example, in a in a in a verse text, rhythm becomes an incredibly important element. And in fact, obviously, rhythm is an important element in all texts uh, and uh, um, it it sometimes takes uh, uh, some uh, um, straining to find what that rhythm is. Um, In fact, I would characterize the process of rehearsal, both for the actor and for the director, as basically finding out what play we have in front of us. What is this play? What is the story that is being told? And it's beyond just words. The story has a significance. It has a narrative, clearly, which is vital. It, has, uh, um, uh, 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 it, it expresses a world of characters and relationships. And uh, in the end, it should leave us, whether it's a farce uh, by Ray Cooney or a play by Aeschylus, it leaves us with an image of destiny at the end. It says, human life is like this. For this moment. It's not saying th- the whole of human life is like this, but this is so in a phaedo farce, for example, you, uh, the, the, the author presents an essentially, although uh, uh, hilariously comic, an essentially tragic view of people trapped in a plot, a plot over which they have no control, which is crushing them to death. Uh, um, but because it's a, a comedy, it's tilted in a certain direction. But that is the image that the play presents. And if you don't get that, then you've wasted your time doing your fado play, you know. So you you you're always asking these questions. The the question Uh, 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 it's to some extent a question of analysis and understanding but it's also a very practical question of what am I going to do with this you know I'm going to stand on stage in four weeks time these words are going to come out of my mouth what am I going to do with them how am I going to make sense of them and that of course that requires um, that you look both outwards and inwards so you look towards what you know about the play, about the world of the play, about what you can, can, can gather, glean from within the text, the, the clues, as it were, that the authors left for you. But you also keep saying, well, what is there in my life that is like this yes. that I understand? What, what is it? So you, you're always bringing yourself, you're, 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 you're bringing what you know about the world because it's you that's going to do it and nobody else. There is no... Absolute objective uh, understanding of of, of of a play there can never be, uh, so it's it's always going to be filtered through and understood through my consciousness and ma- modified and sometimes deeply changed by the consciousness of the director. So, th-
2: so the two words of our title are now actually mixed up together: yeah. interpretation and um, identification. identification. To a certain
3: Yes, I very much like this phrase of yours, Simon. I, I really like the idea of, of saying, "What what play do we have here?" Because, but I think that is an attitude that is, in a sense, is sadly less present, I would say, in musical performance. The equivalent attitude than it might be. So, confronted with Beethoven's Appassionata Sonata, mm. I think it takes a a relatively rare musician to say, "What piece of music do we have here?" Because I think that the 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 kind of Presence of beethoven 's Appassionata Sonata is so um, so large and so in a, and, and for some performers at least so burdensome mm-hmm. as to make this a question that is a very difficult one to open up and I think it would be i think um, the, the i think here that we are starting to see a distinction between attitude of actors, I mean generalizing vastly from tiny <laughs> samples anywhere, but from the attitude of actors to those of musicians. It's, I, I think it's worth saying that, that there's been a project going on at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which is a school of music and drama, in getting both musicians and acting students to work on kind of interpretation, broadly speaking, in, in each other's fil- fields. And the person who is leading this project has been really struck by how the actors are much more prepared to kind of say, "What can we do with this? What possibilities are there?" Whereas the musicians tend, and it's a great generalization, but they tend to come in saying, "Oh, but we have to do these kinds of things oh, and that's not so wrong. Yes that's, exactly that's so
2: wrong. The biggest challenge for all of us, particularly with these works that we know so well by ear, is to go out get a clean score. Don't listen to any recordings. Go out and sit in your garden, read the score, and try and come, uh, come from where Beethoven was coming from. What made him start this sonata low down in the piano, mm. mysterious, and then this great outburst? What, what piece do we have here? Yeah. I do believe that one, one, should, one should start this way, mm. but I have to say you are absolutely right that it is not common either through, I don't know, is it just a uh, stupid lack of time or something like that, or just lack of inner headspace to actually take this attitude? But I think without that, you cannot make a piece sound organic, fresh, uh, moving, mm. actually moving.
3: But perhaps it is also because within the relationship between a performer and the composer, there is this kind of almost too close relationship or a relationship that threatens to become to become too close, in which the performer conceives of herself or himself as being in some sense beholden to the mouthpiece of the spokesperson for whatever we want to think of it or the, inter- or the interpreter of that composer 's music, whereas in the case of of, um, of a- acting. Uh, you know, he, there is the, it is much less the case that the actor surely feels beholden directly to Shakespeare when he is playing Lear, and perhaps rather more involved in the world of Lear, which is something which already has an element of kind of free play and fantasy yes. and creativity about it, rather than the, this authorship
4: problem. Yes, but curiously enough, I would say, I think I speak probably for most actors when I say that the process of working on a play, which of course, as you rightly say, is uh, uh, actually the process of realising and making real and concrete the characters and their relationships to each other and the story that they're involved in and you're telling. But what happens in effect in rehearsal, as the work gets deeper... And as you begin to engage properly with these things and the energies start to flow, is that you b- become extraordinarily conscious of the presence of the author. And the more you're going in the right direction, you have a feeling that the the author's spirit is somehow infusing the work. Um, uh, if, if I may um, uh, take an example of uh, um, a, a, a play... Which I did very, very unsuccessfully um, <laughs> in uh, um, at the National Theatre some 20 years ago, which was "The Alchemist." Um, uh, um, Shakespeare's exact contemporary, um, uh, uh, indeed friend and rival. Um, but no two authors in the world could be more different. Uh, uh, um, I'm sure one feels that as a member of the audience, but as an actor playing the two authors, the the, the sense of um, Shakespeare's openness and availability to all experience, his extraordinary um, mercurial poetic and uh, linguistic uh, capacities, his, his ability to to live through metaphor in the most uh, natural, breathing kind of way, uh, is uh, 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 an extraordinarily joyous experience for an actor. Uh, um, in, uh, and the, uh, Imogen's phrase about, about the, you know, you're not playing the music, but the music playing you, and I, I've said uh, elsewhere that there's this sense that that, that I, I it's not me playing Falstaff, it's Falstaff playing me. It's just I, I just give over because the, the organic quality of of the writing is so exceptional that you know once you've got a start on Falstaff that everything else will follow through, that the, there's, a, there's a, 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 a strong taste, a, a, a principle at work there inside Falstaff. The Falstaff principle, once you've established it and got the feeling of it and made it flesh, that it, it in a very important sense, it, it fills you with itself and you you flow along joyfully because the author gets out of the way of his own characters completely but that doesn't mean he's not there. It is that very act of of, uh, admission of uh, his his openness uh, and his vulnerability, his impressionability to individuals, people, characters that, that, that you sense as an actor. Ben Johnson is absolutely the opposite. Ben Johnson is nothing but willed writing. It's controlled, it's brilliant, it's mostly, in my view, written to impress his fellow authors. It's extremely rigid in its view of human nature. Uh, uh, The famous humors theory uh, um, uh, locks people into types, Uh, and above all, it's monstrously judgmental. I mean, th- the misanthropy which surges through Ben Jonson's <laughs> writing is actually, for me, repulsive to perform. I, I, I found myself hating it. To, uh, the part is face, and uh, it's supposedly uh, uh, you a know, part for which I was born to play and all of those things people say, uh, with his many transformations and all the rest of it. But there's no love in the damn thing. It's just hard, adamantine, and... Shakespeare's the exact opposite. So, in a sense, it is very important in in the rehearsal. I don't know that there's any direct route to doing this, uh, especially with Shakespeare, where we have so little evidence of the man, so little. We don't have a letter from him. We don't have a diary entry. We don't have a really richly characterized personal reminiscence of him. Uh, um, So we, we just have to... Go along in this weird, intuitive way, trying to sense who he is. But it comes to you eventually. Ben Johnson, we happen to know a lot about, uh, 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 and 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 what a, a, an intolerably opinionated <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, 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 b- person he he he, he was. Uh, uh, um, uh, a th- Clearly, a man of genius, hugely talented. But there are, I have noticed with interest, some actors who thrive on Ben Jonson. And I ask myself, what defect is it <laughs> in me that,
3: that makes it impossible for me to engage with this? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. Can I ask you, sorry, the, the, then, the, the, I mean, again, a, a nice phrase to use, Simon, is to say the, the playwright gets out of the way of the characters. Yes. I mean, now taking that, that yes. idea, I know we can't transpose always between, but no, no, do you uh, have a... F-
2: I, I wanted to, to pick up on, up on Simon's point of- about the composer becoming present during a rehearsal period. I would like to tra- time, try and take it that bit further, and indeed I did try to yesterday, I'm not, you know, when I'm plunged into Schubert, I'm not so aware that I'm in touch with this rather endearing little man called Schwammel, who sits uh, around at five foot two and drinks rather too much and uh, doesn't change his socks very often and such things. But I am trying, this sounds like Sue's corner of private eye, it's so hard to say, Uh, but I am trying to get to the centre of what his human condition is which frankly, apart from the fact that he's a genius and I'm not, is not actually that different from me. That is, that is,
1: mm.
2: so I'm sure we're going to come about, to talking about self and loss of self. Mm. I would say it's a, uh, uh, sorry, I'm jumping the gun here. But th- but th- th- if I try to get out of the way, it's because my loss of self means a gain of self. Mm. When, when I b- try and merge with that, which through the music seems to be the center of Schubert's human condition. Mm. Am I making any sense? Yes,
3: no, no, so coming to, to this issue of, of, since this is the other part of, the, of our two, uh, really the, the two words that follow the word performance in, uh, interpretation and identification. If, if the performer is, in, is um, if one of the tasks of the performer, as you were presenting yesterday, is in some sense to identify with something outside of herself, whether that is you know what is it that, that we 're trying to identify with and in what and why is it that we regard um, that process of identifying with something outside of ourselves as being so positive and benign because of course in other circumstances we regard the giving up of self, the loss of self, as being a pathological state. A psychotic is someone who has a serious loss of self. And it raises some, I I think, some rather uh, fascinating questions about what kind of loss of self do we associate with aesthetic activities that we regard as being a positive and a benign kind of loss of self, the kind of loss of self that we might also associate, I don't know, with saints or altruists or Buddhists or something like that, you know, in, in, in which we see it as a virtuous thing. And where do we see it as being, as having the, the you know, negative connotations?
2: Which self are we talking yeah. about? OK. How many selves are there? <laughs> there is the sort of middle conscious self, which is how we fundamentally live most of our days. There is the unconscious self. Mm. There is the higher self. Those two latter ones need to be uh, dug at, found... Uh,
3: put into play, put yes. Put into yep.
2: play, interpreted, dare I say so. I mean, to come back to your mm. idea of psychoanalysis. I, so, so, in that sense, the loss of self. Uh, I don't know, what was it Donald Winnicott said? Something about uh, the full self being uh, supplemented by the true self? Mm. Uh, this this I can imagine too as a concept
3: and and we take the, the i mean there the, are the, 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 at least two books I know of called "Lost in music and we, and uh, just as we talk about lost in thought as being yes. a, a kind of virtuous state of mind in a sense um, that so clearly we, we do regard this idea of leaving what some version of ourselves behind as being yes. kind of important in, in some kind of process of identification that makes music come to life, be richer, it's somehow... It's,
2: it's not, it's just one time. Of course, it, it's, it's <laughs> not disintegration of self, like, let's say, psychosis is. Mm. It's, lo- it's, it's, uh, it's a loss of self in a, in a different way. There's nothing unhealthy about it. Also, it seems to me... Sorry, well, uh, no, but
4: uh, th- 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 to precisely uh, my point w- was that um, the closest thing that I can compare it to in that sense is making love. Which is a moment at which you are at your most complete and also at your least burdened with personality, as it were. Yes, yes. And so, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the state of any uh, actor, m- I think m- most performers will, will say that when you give an extraordinary performance, that is the sensation, which is of just energy flowing through you in the most absolute and complete and communicative way but unburdened with the 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 the, the complexes the neuroses i mean there's obviously making love and making love and we, we perhaps shouldn't uh, uh, open the symposium up to that <laughs> subject or we may not go home at all tonight but uh, um but uh but uh, um, uh, that is the sensation i think and it is absolutely to do with flow of and, but if we could turn it in, in, in a different direction. Um, the uh, This whole business that I started with, if of, of, of you look at the piece, you say, what is it? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you ask what, what, what the old actors used to say. Uh, it's in a way a terrible uh, phrase, but it's a wonderful phrase, too. They used to say, um, I think I've got the trick of Hamlet. <laughs> Meaning, I think I've... Puzzled it out. I know not that I've I've I've, I've got some kind of a um, uh, you know a, a clever uh, um, gimmick that I, b- will make Hamlet work. No, I've actually I, I've seen how Hamlet flows from one scene from one beat to another, mm-hmm. and got,
2: got inside his skin
4: perhaps. Yes, I- exactly. But also in another more craftsmanlike sense, just a sense of this is how it works. Yeah. I, you move from there to there, and then from there to there to there to there, and finally you end up there. And I put this this image to to Imogen, who who, who related to it, which is, in that sense, it's very like plumbing. <laughs> it's just making sure that the the, the energy flows, as I said, this I would clean round the bend. You know, it's got to absolutely, uh, 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 the, the any blockage will be an interference in the communication of the performance. And there are actors who very, you know, you can tell it, I mean, I, I, I can see it very clearly with parts that I'm familiar with, they go, oh, I see, oh, you just decided not to do that, did you? You just kind of skipped over it, and therefore we're all left like this, because it's all absolutely, in a good play, and uh, especially in a, in a truly great play, it, it's all... welded together, specifically in order to create this huge concerted flow of energy, mental energy and emotional energy and physical energy and maybe psychic energy as well, all surging together in a huge confluence. And um, we, our job is to keep looking at, in performance, you know, you suddenly think, oh, I, I, why, I, it's not working anymore. Why is it not working? I, 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 I <coughs> used to know how to play this part, and, and now oh, there's a terrible blip, uh, something a stumble, like hitting a stone on the road in a car, you, uh, and, and you have to step right back and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. And you look at the plumbing again, and you say, ah, oh, of course, of course, because it's there. And I, I do think that must be very similar mm-hmm. to music. I
2: do not sometimes find that you learn things on stage, literally in performance, oh, that you haven't learned in yeah. rehearsal. However
4: oh, much it's totally, been you you never learn anything until you've actually done it. it you never it know it. Know it. And uh, well. But of course, we have this very and different thing from why you. That, why? why? Because I think because be our because, because yes, it is completing the circle of energy. Yes. That's yes. certainly yes. true. And, and the fact that you again, as I say, you know, in four weeks' time, I've got to stand on set. You've got to do it. You you know, here people are. They've come to see you and it, and. Every, all of your energies are focused towards that, and then the, 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 the extra shove comes that you can't manage on your own. Um, but, but, of course, for us actors, um, in the theatre particularly, we have the different experience from you that you've never played anything eight times a week.
2: Uh, this is true, no. I love it. And,
4: and eight times a week and, and, and four then four, four weeks a month and then sometimes going on and on and on and on. And matinees, okay. And matinees, all of that. Yes, <laughs> twice a day and all of that. Twice a day, I just, yep. just can But, I, but, I, but I, I, I believe that it's only when I've done, when, when, a, when a, the run of a play starts, I, 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 I always look forward t- excitedly to the matinee day because I know that when I've done the matinee, I'll have, as you say, well, I've understood all sorts of things that I can immediately put into effect Ah. that night. And then it all begins to get into your muscular memory and then you carry that through until by Saturday night you're somewhere else. Unless things are going horribly wrong with any luck, every week brings an increment of of understanding and realisation of what the thing is. I
2: always used to think it was the muscular memory, but I now learn that it is actually nothing but the brain. Yeah. Yeah. thought that these things would start working by themselves when when the memory was functioning well, but actually it's apparently yeah. up here.
3: Well, I want to put a slight spanner in the in yes. the, in the works Beautiful. of the plumbing, as it were, <laughs> yeah. and that is um, that the impression that you've given, compelling though it is, uh, both of you is is of a kind of plumbing that is intrinsic to the work itself and that therefore in a sense that there should that there might be only one way and a way that we're all searching for that is the way to, to do right? whether it's a play or a piece let me just give you this example though about, about historical change about how things how quickly actually our attitudes can change to what we think of as being you know a great performance now and a great performance then so um the, the soprano elena gerhardt um was one of the most distinguished singers of her generation and she with with arthur Nikish who is better known as a conductor usually than as a pianist but anyway they recorded uh, schubert's Andi musik um in 1911 <laughs> And this recording, which was much, I mean, she was, as I say, she was a complete star in her own time, was re-released in about the year 2000 on a, we are increasingly aware now of historical recordings and of the capacity now, which is the, we are the first generation to be able to do this, I suppose, to hear 100-odd years of musical performance now, which no-one has ever been able to do before. And th- a reviewer of this re- recording wrote as follows. "As follows, Arthur Nikisch and soprano Elena Gerhardt were musicians of great renown in their day, but their 1911 performance of *Undi Musik is frankly appalling. <laughs> Nikisch plays the opening accompaniment quickly, then slows to half-speed when Gerhardt enters. What follows for nearly four minutes, not so much a tribute to music, as a travesty of it, altogether there is little offered by the early 20th century generation of singers that I should like young singers of today to hear. So this is a this is a kind of clearly an attitude from 2000. I, I mean, I, I will suppress the name of this reviewer, um, but but this is clearly an attitude, and it may have been uh, you know it may have been that many other reviewers immediately heard um, that this was actually wonderful singing. But I think we have to at least allow ourselves to recognise that that attitudes towards how to do this plumbing in the optimal way change. Um, actually, I mean it is a, this is one hundred years, and we have many hundreds of years of music that that we, that we continue to perform, so there are tremendous changes in, in, in these historical attitudes. How do we reconcile that well, against the idea that there is, that there is a kind of a heart and soul that we 're all aiming for, and it is a, as it were a single thing you see it's, it, this, this is where of course any
4: discussion like the one we 're having becomes immensely complicated because we have barely mentioned the audience's expectations. Mm. And um, there's this rather wonderful book by Charles Rosen called Music and Sentiment, which makes an extremely interesting case about what expectation of music was, what people expected to hear in the 18th century. He starts the 18th century. And what and how if it, if that expectation was transgressed or surprised how powerful the emotional effect would be within an extremely accepted norm and how then the um uh um, uh, uh, uh in the in the during the, what we call the romantic period how the 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 the, the Ideal of all music was to create constant intensity, and he takes the Schumann fantasia uh, as, as, as the great instance of that of you 're plunged into a surging mass of, of emotion which only gets more and more and more and more and more, and uh, that the, the performers were expect, you know there, therefore grew up to that understanding and the most important thing in the concert hall became that level of excitement. It wasn't accuracy, wasn't critical, structure wasn't critical, it was a sense of the performer being in a hugely elevated state, and so on. So e- every generation of, of, of listeners, and it obviously must be true of theatre goes, expects a certain something. And um, most actors, except the radicals, the revolutionaries, will... Um, uh, 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 try to 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 give the audience what they want. Um, others will have other ideas, either because they can't do it and therefore have to do something else, or because they think it's wrong. So in the British theatre, there was a tremendously clear instance of that in the 1930s, when John Gielgud and uh, Ralph Richardson acted together in Romeo and Juliet, John Gilgood, with typical generosity, being an extremely established uh, Shakespearean actor, invited Laurence Olivier to alternate with him the roles of Romeo and Mercutio. And John Gilgood was the heir, as it were, to the great tradition of English verse speaking. His aunt was Ellen Terry. Uh, he was, to the day he died, an extraordinary musician with words. Laurence Olivier uh, was all about realism, of making it real. And uh, to the extent that people were literally shocked, by, both by his Mercutio and his Romeo, by their physicality, their tremendous sense of, uh, of, of excitement, of sexuality, which John sort of paled into insignificance beside this, this young kind of panther <laughs> prowling around the stage, absolutely at the expense of the verse. Um, <laughs> Famously, James Agee, the critic of the Sunday Times, said, Mr. Olivier does not speak the verse badly. He does not speak it at all. <laughs> and, but so, so Lawrence then became, or Lawrence Olivier then was, became the, uh, um, uh, the, the flag bearer for the idea of realism in the classics. But wind forward to his Othello in 1964, and um, that... His, his realism had ceased to be real. Mm-hmm. Uh, his realism had become, in the view of certainly the younger theatre-going audience, had become impossibly mannered and outdated. And so they wanted a different sort of realism, which was then provided by another generation of actors like Albert Finney and so on. Mm-hmm. Who th- Now, whether you think this really works for verse or not, I don't know. But it's also... Sorry, to, I've taken a rather long time to, to, to make my point. But uh, um, I, I'd like to add... Uh, the, 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 the thought that of course bec- like sound recording because we now have television archives going very far back it's utterly fascinating to listen to people's accents change individuals accents change a B- big point has been made about the Queen recently uh, how those absurd cut glass vowels sort of slowly melted and, 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 and she speaks more or less like a human being now <laughs> and, uh, um, but I was astonished to see an interview with a Peter Brook. Peter Brook was interviewing Sir Thomas Beecham, as it happens, uh, in 1950, and uh, the young and puckish Brook says, "So, Sir Thomas, tell us how exactly you achieve your effects with the orchestra." And Peter now has not 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 anything about. But the point is, everybody spoke like that in in, in the in the in the media. That was that was how people spoke. If you were you know, and and nobody thinks about it at all the audience would have been astonished if he'd spoken the way he speaks today they would have thought what's he doing why is he putting that on that weird accent you know we want him to talk like that and so so all those expectations and so in exactly the same way you know you you, you listen to singers of the past and and with all their scoops and their swoops and their so on. and these are the very things that brought very good critics and judges to their knees sobbing and, and And the portamento, as you said and uh, and, and the, the whole norrington anti uh, um, vibrato anti-vibrato movement uh, uh, it 's very uh, in, interesting to be living through all that because one, you know, I, I feel a tremendous nostalgia for the performances that I just about caught by the end of the, by the 60s or late 60s, uh, which uh, uh, nurtured the music so much that Barbaroli uh, kind of making love to the music was well, what you, we Would lo- you want
2: to hear Klemperer conducting a Mozart symphony again
1: still
4: now? Yes! <laughs> oh yes! Klemperer, absolutely. Beat (laughs) No, but it does. I know it, but 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 that brings us back to the other very interesting question of interpretation and interpreters. Is that Clambera had an extraordinarily formed personality, an extraordinarily brilliant brain, and he was clearly a musician of the highest order. And so everything that he does is interesting. But but I agree with you. It doesn't. I mean, I would prefer. No, I wouldn't. I actually withdraw that. If, if you said to me, Otto Klemper is conducting round the corner tonight, uh, would you go, he's conducting Mozart? I'd say, I'm there. Uh, so I'm there. Because, because, because of the extraordinary, I mean, I, I remember him conducting uh, Beethoven, Eighth Symphony, incredibly slowly it seemed uh, at the time Uh, and uh, it just it weighed heavily but it still was an astonishing experience to be there because the orchestra partly to do with his physical decrepitude the orchestra was playing with such uh, focus they had to keep together in the face of all of this whatever (laughs) was going on Uh, uh, um, and and he was just doing it with his eyes really nothing else all that was an amazing experience.
1: I'd like like to bring it back to the audience, and and in particular this audience, Uh and and perhaps uh, open the floor to some questions. Um, I think it might be time for that to happen. Um, Murray, do we have a microphone? Yeah. Okay. Would anybody like to offer up some words, interrogative or or otherwise?
4: about the idea of an absolute objective, there's no um notion of that, nothing um objective in in a performance um I was just wondering maybe if that is perhaps countered by music lessons education, the idea that when you're
5: taught you have to play perform in a certain way
2: mm. um, but that is perhaps only but a start to your... You have to start from somewhere. A teacher is doing their best to say, this strikes me to be the best way and also a practical way of getting round the instrument because one's still at a learning stage. But that is but a start, that one can then knock, one's, knock that over oneself in due time and find one's own ideas. And one shouldn't stay rigid to a given idea, given one which of course is not easy. We do have Mm. habits. I remember uh, backstage at the Festival Hall before Brendel was going to play the Schumann Concerto and he was playing some of the last movement which is horrendously hard. One has to really keep very cool. And he was saying as he was practicing when I think that I had this teacher who taught me when I was 12 that I must never put a thumb on a black note, it still bothers me now to try and find different fingerings. Yeah. <laughs> so these things can actually go mm-hmm. very deep, and one should be careful that they don't stick around too long and that one finds one's own way
1: around things. There was a question over here, I believe. Yeah. We, we have, have a microphone. microphone
6: it, it would be tempting to to think that uh, the definitive performance of, say, the Appassionata by Beethoven would be to hear Beethoven himself playing it. And yet, from from the conversation, it would seem that that might not necessarily be the case, because of course he, he would have been coming from a different era. So, although in one sense he would be the obvious person to to to, to give the definitive interpretation, in another sense it, that may not be so.
2: Well, there are some practical matters there. Firstly, <laughs> he, he probably wouldn't have been a good enough pianist to actually be able to play his own work. And secondly, poor man, he wouldn't have been able to hear a note of what he was playing, uh, which means there would have been no balancing factor in his uh, recreation, recreation, interpretation, however you like to put it. Um, I don't know if that completely answers your question.
6: Well, if, if you apply to, say, Schubert... You understand the point I'm, I'm trying to make about the com- completing the circle over time. Yes. I mean, in one sense, he would obviously have complete mastery of, of, of everything that went into the composition, but in terms of playing to a contemporary 21st century audience, w- would do you think he, he would be able to give as much as a, as a contemporary player interpreting him in the way that you were talking about yesterday.
2: Yes, and that's where the present-day interpreter has to uh, fill the gap between 200 years ago and now. Uh, not least because we, are, we also have to perform in modern concert halls, which are of a much larger size than mm. you know, Schubert's domestic room, or even as the Schwarzenberg Palais in, in Vienna. Uh, we have modern instruments, we have modern ears, and what we have to say must be deeply relevant for a modern audience without one trying to be um, uh, contemporary or original just for the sake of it. But that's an interesting point about bridging a gap between the composer.
4: But but it's wrong to assume that the composer would have given the same performance every time. As we know from the, the composers who have recorded their own music, like Stravinsky, they vary from day to day as to how they see their music, which is surely how it must be, because it must be alive.
3: And perhaps there is a sense also in which the circuit that we've been talking about is short-circuited in a sense in the, in the situation that you describe in a way that is not, despite the fact that that sort of complete identity between performer and composer seems to be the kind of logical best case, Perhaps it is that the the, the, the the gap that opens up between the process of composition and the process of performance is a creative gap. Is it? I mean, it introduces a tension and a difference that is productive rather than than destructive. I've been working in in the project that um, Jason alluded to at the beginning. I've been working with a. A performer virtuoso violin player who is uh, and who's done a lot of work on violinists violins and Paganini in particular in in his own um, in his own practice and he's quite convinced that, that that what we see as sometimes being a destructive separation of the process of composition and performance actually opens up an incredibly productive space between those two kind of creative processes that allows a particular kind of creativity to take place that is that is collapsed out of the identity of composer with performer but isn't it fascinating that again in the in
4: those performers who have recorded uh, uh b- 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 performer composers who have recorded how striking it is that they eschew what you might call interpretation mm. Rachmaninoff is someone in particular yes. both as a conductor and as a pianist uh, uh Elgar's another uh, they, they seem to Yes, it, it seems to be absolutely... That they, they seem to understand a clear line which goes through their music with no particular easing out, as you might have expected, particularly with Rachmaninoff. In fact, he b- 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 plays very strictly yes. in tempo. To exactly. Uh, and it's thrilling. I mean, it's absolutely thrilling. There's nothing uh, kind of uh, dull or uninterpreted about it. Uh, but um, could I just... I suppose we must be coming fairly close to our at the end. But... but um, This, um, it is a very, very teasing question, the question of interpretation, Um, uh, insofar as interpretation is someone saying, what can I do with this, as opposed to how can I best release this and bring it to life? It's a fairly fine uh, uh, distinction, but it's a very, very crucial one, that if you think, how can I show off my skills in playing this particular piece of music or playing this particular role, as opposed to saying, what's going on in this part? But, but to revert to my more craftsman-like imagery of plumbing and so on, it's in a quite an important sense. Um, again, the more we get out of the way the more extraordinary, the well, more, more, more likely it is that we'll put something completely uh, original and vivid in front of the public. Um, and we do, actors, and maybe this is also true of uh, 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 musicians, get involved in in a sort of process, a thought process, especially, I know this very much from working with young American actors, they are now, so bound up in psychology that they actually can't move. They don't understand. They, 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 they can't, they, they don't understand that a lot of what they're talking about is not playable. You can't act these things. I asked them, well, so what's going on here in this scene? Well, she wants to, you know, she really, she'd like to have a better, more relationship with her friend, but, but, but because of her mom dying and she can't. <laughs> How, how exactly are you going to perform that? And <laughs> I, I, the, I was terribly struck years ago when I was writing a book about Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton played Macbeth very unsuccessfully at the Old Vic in 1934. And uh, his Lady Macbeth was uh, an actress probably nobody remembers her at all, now called Flora Robson. And she was a very, very distinguished actress in her day. Um, but um, uh, her great friend was the dramatist James Bridie, who uh, was a pseudonym for someone called Maver, but uh, uh, he wrote a famous play called The Anatomist, also not remembered now, but a very, very sharp, interesting writer about theatre and the theatrical process. And he went to see this production of Macbeth because she'd invited him to, and he didn't go backstage, and she was very, uh, um, uh, sh- she, she felt that he must not have liked it at all, and and he She wrote to him and said, well, you didn't come backstage. And he wrote and said, no, I didn't come backstage because I couldn't tell you what I can tell you now, which is that you and Mr. Lawton and Mr. Guthrie, who directed the play, uh, seem to fancy yourself as psychologists. You are not psychologists. That is a special discipline which you are not masters or mistresses of. Your job, he says to Flora Robson, is to flick Lady Macbeth through your soul. That is all. Well, you know, I don't know he's wrong. Honestly. I mean, that. if I, if I, if I could think that I'd flicked Falstaff through my soul, I'd think, you know, I'd, I'd give him a bit of...
1: We have another question back there.
0: I'll stand up to be seen and heard. Um, picking up, actually, on... on the points you've just gone through recently, and, and uh, also the question about um, about teaching and pedagogy. And uh, going back to Eric's opening observations about the openness of the score to interpretation or its lacunae, and, and the same going with the script, the, the lacunae of the script. Um, those things, it seems to me, derive very much from the origins of... Uh, of notational practice, modern notational practice, and indeed modern um, uh, theatrical practice in the the 16th to 18th centuries, when actors and and playwrights, um, musicians and composers worked very closely together. So perhaps the script, the score, didn't need to have as much notational detail as we might want or expect today because they worked so closely together and, uh, and perhaps also going on from that, the tradition that uh, gets established when a performer and a uh, composer or a performer and a playwright work closely together then gets handed on thr- from, student, uh, from, from teacher to student and so on. And so I wondered how uh, tradition might be important for you today as performers or for performers uh, of your generation generally, whether tradition is still an important element or whether it is something that has been replaced by perhaps a modernist desire for revolution of the kind that Simon referred to with Laurence Olivier, which itself probably goes back to David Garrick uh, in theatrical terms.
4: Well, uh, uh, just to to round off on that, uh, uh, in theatrical terms, uh, as it happens, every generation uh, who, who are acclaimed are acclaimed for being more real than the generation before. And they almost immediately declined into being, in the view of the next generation, mannered, hopeless, and so on. Um, but uh, uh, I'm not, I, I think that you, you, you have a point, actually. That <coughs> uh, the, the point, a, 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 a slightly different point to the one you were making, but it's in the same area, is that I think most playwrights until very recently, wrote plays specifically for particular actors, a particular company. They knew their actor. They didn't, therefore, have to put in very much of what w- would be uh, understood by that actor. You know. And as most playwrights were lucky if they got a run of six performances of their play. You know, I mean, congru- way, The Way of the World, I think, had six performances in its original run and wasn't revived for 100 years afterwards. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, 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 a real sense that, that it, you know, plays are disposable. You, you get, get them on quick. You don't need to fuss around. They're not being done for publication. And there's an interesting thing, too. Ben Johnson published his own plays in his lifetime. The only playwright who did that <laughs> ever. Certainly Shakespeare didn't do it. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, but so, he, you know, he was writing, as it were, for posterity and all the rest of it. But most playwrights write for now, for the minute. Uh, and, and I think that must have been true. Of course it was true of most composers. I mean, look at the, the phenomenon of Mozart writing his three last symphonies. We have no record of any performance of them. He just wrote them, you know. He quickly knocked them off you know, he felt the impulse to write it, something like that. On another occasion, he'll write change an opera, idomineo, completely because of the, 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 the cast and th- that he had at his disposal. So th- again, it was a much more pragmatic, practical kind of discipline altogether. In, in another way, m- much later in time, I did years ago, uh, one of my very first jobs, a uh, play by Sheila Delaney called A Taste of Honey. But that play, you look at that play, and there are things in the script that you simply cannot understand and you realize because the play was largely improvised under the direction of Joan Littlewood you realize that a lot of what happens in the script happened as part of a physical action of a part of a a sort of evocation of of, of the lives of those people that is not in the play at all and
3: And that is a way of that would be you know that is a way of making music which I think is is, is, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to sound very negative, but I think it's, it's, it's sadly less present in classical music performance, mm-hmm. that kind of sense of making it up as you go along, in that very positive sense of making yeah. it up as you go uh, along, that, that, that is much less present. Than it yeah. might be partly because of the of the tremendously retrospective nature of our, of our musical culture in general, that we are mostly not, uh, you know, Um, the the, the amount of contemporary music (laughs) that is performed is of course very, very much less than the amount of music that uh, 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 a previous time. But also the forces
4: which are involved are so often so large and complex. If you write for a symphony orchestra, it's really hard, despite various attempts to write for symphony orchestra aleatorically and so on. It's incredibly hard to actually make that happen. It's a vast, sophisticated machine which Built up over a century to the vast size that it arrived at. Did
2: you not feel that at that wonderful performance of Brahms Four by the Budapest Festival Orchestra yeah. that we both heard? Yeah. I felt they were making it up. Yes, yes.
4: It absolutely. Up? That's well, that's what we. That is they in the end. I, I can't remember it. I wish I could, but Schnabel has some phrase about about playing with forgetfulness. Of, <laughs> of course, he did. Forget. But 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 uh, but playing with forgetfulness of uh, of. Of 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 the, the any history any tradition any sense other than here we are now at this moment mm-hmm. making these sounds that and that sense of is it not uh, the sprezzatura the the, the Renaissance idea of, of of the spontaneity of the thing just just going that of course is in the end what we all aspire to I mean that's with Shakespeare but that's why it's so possible with Shakespeare that you can absolutely catch it as you you you, you, you can really say To be or not to be, that is the question, as if nobody had ever said that before, because it's it's such an extraordinary thing to say. And uh, just another little footnote about interpretation. Um, As you listen to the play, and when I say listen, in exactly the way that Imogen sits in the garden with her score and she listens to the music, I and most other actors will sit and read this, the play and listen to it in our heads as it goes along and try to hear its music and try to get its the, 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 the sense of, 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 of what, again, what it's all about, what the, what, the, what the emotions are that are passing from one character to another. Receptic. Yes, that, but also just just the flavor of it, the atmosphere of any one scene or one, e- thing. atmosphere, a much underrated word, it was used a lot in the past, in, in, in especially in the late 19th century, early 20th century, a- the atmosphere of a scene in a play is such a critical thing that you can almost smell and taste, the atmosphere of Hamlet on the battlements on the, the, at the beginning of the play is such a palpable thing, or should be, but it's not rather ignored nowadays, anyway, that wasn't the point at all that I wanted to make. The point I wanted to make was this, that you, if you, as you expose yourself more and more and more and more to the play, you begin to h- discover things that your quick eye or quick ear don't uh, hear at all at first, and you sometimes find that there are things in a play which are absolutely pivotal, critical, vital, and that normally just glided over, uh, 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 and that you yourself have glided over them. And I came upon just such a phrase in As You Like It. uh, I was doing a play called Being Shakespeare, a play about Shakespeare, and it opened with me um, talking about As You Like It and how in the forest the exiled duke is Trying to cheer his courtiers up, they're very glum that they're in the forest at all. And then suddenly, Orlando, the young man, bursts on. He's desperate. He's angry. He's violent. And uh, uh, the duke calms him down and, and promises to feed him. And the Orlando goes off to pick up the old servant that he's been carrying through the forest, old Adam. And the duke turns to the courtiers, and he says, "Thou seest, we are not." All alone, unhappy. This wide and universal theatre presents more shows and so on than we pre- pre- present here. But And then it leads into, of course, all the world's a stage. But I'd never, ever noticed that line. We are not all alone, unhappy. And I realised that line in some senses sums up the whole of what the theatre is. That's what we show when we put on a play, that we are not all alone, unhappy. Other people have been there before. Other people have experienced this. This, this is part of what it is to be human. And, um, you know, it's things like that that I suppose I would count as true interpretation. Is of actually, su- and, and it must be so in music, you must suddenly find a little phrase that suddenly releases everything else. And maybe the, you know, I'm sure Shakespeare wrote the play in, you know, three days. I'm sure he didn't think about it for one second having written it, never thought of it again. But because he was so connected to hi- hi- his brain and his heart and his imagination are so wonderfully connected that when he came to write this little sequence about theater and and the play, and all, me- all of Shakespeare's plays allude to the fact that we are on a stage, but that extraordinary moment, and that, that is, but you can't really get to that point until you really know the play intimately. You can't, you know, if you didn't know the play, if you didn't know a, a lot about acting and a lot about the theater, you wouldn't see that line, but there it is. Radiant.
2: And maybe when you actually come back to a play after a few years, I've often come back to a score, and the most interesting point for me has been the time when I've looked at a new score and played through the work again. These can do it quite well because uh, they've learnt it before, but something has changed in me. And I suddenly realised that there's a succession of bass notes that I never heard before, which give a completely different shape. Or some harmonies that most people overlook, including myself. Yeah. A succession of harmonies, which, if you give them the colour and the life that they seem to be crying out for, the whole of the movement becomes mm-hmm. completely different. Yeah. But that has only happened over a few years of coming yeah. back to.
4: And it's not necessarily conscious. It's no, not. One isn't looking. No you know. What? How can I plumb the depths of this work? No, it just, just speaks to sense. you.
1: We did have another question here in the middle. Um, Perhaps we can pass the microphone through.
5: Simon, so, mean, you mentioned the idea of understanding the beat in the theatre. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that's something that might be a nice connection between the musical and the theatrical, that, that the understanding of silence uh, in the moment of performance and what, I suppose, leads to the Understanding of the performer of, of the exact nature and the exact length of a fermata uh, and there being only one length of that, of that silence that, that, it, that works in the moment. Mm. That there is an almost scientifically perfect uh, length of silence that, m- that m- makes sense of what we've heard before. At that moment. At that moment, yeah. At that performance. But it would be a completely
4: different... Mm. length of silence at the next performance.
5: But whether that's something to, to do with the, what we've heard before or, or whether it's tied into the uh, f- sort of fundamentals of performance in the, in the body and, and in breath. Uh,
4: t- totally. It, it's because it, when, when, uh, when I read Imogen's lecture, I, I said to her, well, this is very fascinating because it seems to me that everything that you say about playing suggests that you're aspiring to the condition of an actor in the way you approach, the way you dramatise each Subjects wha- the way the, the piece is a journey through to something, the way you wish to unleash emotions, whereas everything in my life as an actor has been more and more about finding the musical form and structure of it and the rhythm and even you, you can even speak you can speak of melody undoubtedly in, 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 in especially in, in, in verse plays but in, in many plays uh, Pinter's plays have a melody absolutely which you have to nurture and and, and learn how to express and and uh, you can even speak almost of harmony sometimes in in, in, in in certain relationships juxtapositions of things you create some extraordinary moment you check off you find that a lot some a moment which is two things coming simultaneously, tears and laughter famously, you know, but but, but and so on. And and the more I, I work as an actor, the more I'm interested in that and, and finding the 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 moment and it, it sort of immediately communicates to the audience the sense of of everybody rhythmically engaged together. And that's where I think uh, So much modern verse speaking is is so desperately lacking. Music in language is an absolutely... Mm. dirty phrase in the theatre. People now, oh, God, oh, they all use those phrases they used to use about Gielgud, oh, he's singing it. Well, sometimes you have to sing it, you know, it really has to, you have to really, and and you have to, it really is really strongly musical, you have to have a sort of semi-breve sometimes on a word, you know, you've just got to expand it out and then gather it, you rubato, constantly changing and shifting the the rhythm. The, the, um, our predecessors were masters of this. That's what they did. They were extraordinary at it. And it, it might. Oh sorry, I'm talking a lot, but I, I'm going to carry on. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 um, Dustin Hoffman, uh, to, to, I'll start dropping names furiously now. Dustin Hoffman told me that he, as a young actor, had lived in digs with Gene Hackman in New York. And um, uh, one night, Gene Hackman had come back home and Half. They had no money, the, 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 nothing to do. I mean, he'd eaten. He, you know, he, he went to bed. Uh, um, uh, Hackman uh, woke him up in the middle of the night. He said, "I've just seen this guy. This guy. This guy. He's called John Gielgud. He's 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 reading Shakespeare down at the Y. You have to go. You have to go." And and Hoffman said, "I know who he is. I, no, I don't want that it's English acting. I don't want anything to do. And Hoffman said, "Hackman picked him up by his collar and you 'You don't go down there. but I'm going to smash your head against the wall.'" So. Most most reluctantly, Dustin went along to the wire and on came John. It was a program called The Ages of Man. It was just speaking verse shakespeare 's verse. Uh, um, he was in a dinner jacket it was just and he just spoke the, the verse and played various scenes you know and uh, um, Hoffman, as Gilgood came on, uh, Hoffman thought to himself, there you are that 's it just I knew I knew it would be like English acting, uh, dead from the neck down and <laughs> uh, uh, all this singing, singing, singing going on like this. And he was criticising the performance in his mind as it went on. And then he said he became aware of something unaccustomed, which was tears rolling down his face. And that's, that's what it does. That's when you take it to that level. You know, And uh, John was, I mean, the point about John Gielgud's sense of, of, of languages that, that he spoke. Shakespeare's verse as if it were the most natural thing in the world to do that, but it was, it was wonderfully sprung in its rhythm all the time and his, his sense of shape and line and all of that, it reaches parts that other acting doesn't reach and that's what people simply don't understand at the moment. It's an extraordinary thing to have abandoned um, and maybe that co- connects with music as well, that there, are, there was a more um, emotionally, um, uh, what should I say, frank uh, uh, approach from certain performers that I've heard in my life, uh, like Shura Tchaikovsky, you know, but, but, and, uh, I mean, if you listen to the recording, it's just, it's just scattered with wrong notes, but, it's, but, but there was a, just a flow in there, which was extraordinary.
2: But I'm fascinated by these musical terms that Simon uses, because as I get older, the thing I want to do more and more is tell a story,
0: mm-hmm.
2: wordlessly tell a story. Mm-hmm. Because to me, there is a whole narrative going on behind a piece of music, which makes total and utter sense. And somehow, I have got to convince the the audience of what this story actually is. So I'm much more interested in the drama mm. uh, Without putting words to it.
5: Yeah,
4: because the other comes is absolutely natural to you, just as yes. it's absolutely natural to me to think in th- terms of characterization of and so on. It's I don't really even think about that anymore. But what I do think about is the other thing, the thing that I don't know about, which is uh, uh, which I'm more and more convinced about.
1: Maybe time for one more question.
2: When you say that, um, you ask what is the piece or the play, do you think that's something subjective or objective?
4: Uh, yeah, uh, what the young lady asked was, when, when I say uh, what is the piece, is that, uh, am, I, am I trying to find out that by subject, subjectively or objectively? And I have to say that I think in a sense those phrases mean nothing. Mm-hmm. All I can do is to expose myself to the play.
1: Mm.
4: I, 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 I must guard against putting myself onto the play, but I must just listen and see what is there. What is there? Why does he say that? What is it in that phrase? Why did he say it in that way and not in another way? Exactly. What is the evidence in front of me? <clears throat> and, and it's almost like a detective yeah. job. What is going on here, and it's oh, honestly a lot clearer, a lot less clear than you might think in many plays in Shakespeare, it's often not very clear at all at the beginning, mm. and then you finally amass all the evidence and you think, well well, what kind of a person behaves like that if he does this, this this, this, and this, and this? is there something that that that, that, that uh, makes all this add up and um, I was doing, a few years ago, a production of Twelfth Night at the National Theatre, in which I played Toby Belch. And I, I, I did that work, and I looked at it, and I just said, well, there's only one word that describes Sir Toby Belch, and that is alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> but he is an alcoholic, and it's one of Shakespeare's... It happens from time to time in Shakespeare where he actually, almost medically precisely, creates a character like dementia in the case of, of, of King Lear, and here the alcoholism is absolutely a case book. And I knew this, and this is where it, you would perhaps say the subjective element uh, enters into it, I knew this because my father was an alcoholic. And this, to- Toby Belch, is a picture of my father. And so that's how I played him. And uh, um, uh, I, I, of course, swear that i'm right and everybody else is wrong but uh (laughs) many other people play toby bops quite differently but it's to me categorically so in the end we have to be convinced ourselves of what it is that we're doing Mm. because otherwise it'll be it'll be a a, a mere hypothesis Uh, we have to say well that's it and i didn't I mean, I tested it very hard. I didn't, it wasn't a single line that, that, I, that I was squeezing into that interpretation. I was literally, forensically trying to ask myself, who is this man? And that was the answer that absolutely shouted off the page at me.
1: Well, I'd like to take advantage of my role as moderator and ask a final question of Imogen. And it's a very straightforward question, very simple. Um, why did you choose recreative, recreative, as the primary word, that, that pivotal word in the title of your lecture yesterday? Why not simply interpretation or some other word? Why that word?
2: If I had to give the t- a title to the lecture again now,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I'm not sure I would give exactly that title because I've come to understand what happens by thinking about all this and having to write it down as opposed to just do it, I've come to understand more clearly what happens when we interpret and when we perform. Um, When I chose the title, it struck me as plain sailing and obvious Mm -hmm. that the creator was the the composer and that the re-creator trying to bring to life the creation was the performer. And to say that I was a creator would have been tremendous cheek. <laughs> I was I was taking the text off the page, some notes that are nothing but signposts, and asking myself what is this work about. I was trying to to refuel it with the same energies as the composer re-created. Maybe it's not such a daft word. It struck me as a as a a cleaner word than interpretative. Mm-hmm. And indeed, have we not seen that the word interpretative mm-hmm. can bring yes. about? I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. We could go on for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my reason behind mm-hmm. using the word recreative. Creative. Not recreative as a walk in the park.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, <laughs>
2: the, the hyphen was all important. All important. There, important.
1: <laughs> well, with that, I'd like to thank my dear colleague, Eric Clark, for being here today. Simon Callow for joining us here at St. John's. I have to say I never thought I'd be sitting next to him on a stage (laughs) having him affect a New York accent (laughs) to my side. (laughs) I'm from Brooklyn, so. (laughs) Um, But most of all, I'd like to thank Imogen Cooper, who has graced us with her presence now over the span of of a few months. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart I cannot imagine a better inaugural a humanitas professor than you. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we've gotten to know each other, and I'm thrilled that you've been able to be on the stage in so many different capacities. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for being here.